Hi there. I'm Chris Kessling and welcome to Defence Barrister, the podcast on understanding and surviving criminal trials, sentencing and appeals. Today in episode four, we're continuing on our journey through the criminal justice system in England and Wales by going to court. In fact, to the first appearance of our defendants, Aidan, Bianca and Connor, all of whom face a charge of murdering Daniel Clark during a fight outside a nightclub early on Saturday morning. If you want to know more about how they arrived at where they are now, please go back and listen to episodes one to three, where you can find out about why they were all arrested and all about powers of arrest for both the police and civilians, what happened to them in the police station and the rights of suspects in police custody, and the approach they took to answering police questions during their interviews under caution, all having taken advantage of their right to free legal advice. You can also hear all about what is meant by joint enterprise and, in episode three, all about the offence of murder, a charge which all of our defendants now face. Daniel had a broken bottle pushed into his face in the early hours of Saturday morning. Daniel's friends put the blame on Aidan for doing this and clearly suggested that Bianca and Connor were encouraging him to do so. Later on that same day, Daniel died. There were a number of causes for his death, which occurred as a result of a hypoxic ischemic brain injury, a lack of oxygen to the brain, due to cardiac arrest, coupled with alcohol and drug intoxication and sharp force injury to the face. In the opinion of the pathologist who conducted the post-mortem, the attack with a bottle, while not the only cause of death, was nonetheless a substantial and operating cause of why Daniel died, his death coming as a shock to everyone, including those who are now being accused of being responsible for it. It's now Monday morning, the first time that the magistrate's court is open for business this week and Aidan, Bianca and Connor are placed in a secure vehicle and driven to court. As they make their journey from the police station, it gives me the perfect opportunity to introduce the magistrate's court as well as the Crown Court and our two-tier system of criminal justice. In a nutshell, the magistrate's court is for people accused of less serious offences and the Crown Court for people accused of more serious as well as the most serious criminal offences. I'll get to what that means in a moment, but before I do, you may well ask, if the Crown Court is for the most serious offences, why are our three defendants, all of whom are accused of murder, heading to the magistrate's court? The simple answer is because every criminal case that goes to court has to start at the magistrate's court. If that's where the case remains, or whether it's simply a port you travel through on your way to the Crown Court, depends on several things, including what sort of offence you're charged with, since some offences can only be heard at the magistrates, some are either the magistrates' court or the Crown Court, and some, the most serious, only at the Crown Court. But I'll get to that. Before I do, let me tell you about the magistrates' court, or what lawyers usually refer to as the MAGs. The Magistrates' Court is the lower tier of criminal courts, where cases are usually heard either by a bench of three magistrates or by a district judge sitting alone. To put things into perspective, it's worth mentioning that the overwhelming majority of criminal cases, around 95%, are dealt with by magistrates. Most people charged with a crime, therefore, are unlikely ever to see the inside of a Crown Court. 
Magistrates themselves are part-time judges and are not professional lawyers. For this reason, they're often referred to as lay magistrates and also often as justices or JPs, which is shorthand for justices of the peace. District judges, on the other hand, sit full-time and are professional lawyers and are often referred to informally by lawyers as DJs. Not the spinning disc type of DJs, but rather the dispensing justice type, or at least that's the idea. There are also some part-time DJs known as deputy district judges, who are usually lawyers who want to become full-time district judges and are learning the ropes. Lay magistrates receive training to carry out their roles and in court they receive assistance on law and procedure from what's known as the Justice's Legal Advisor, also referred to as the Justice's Clerk, or to use the most up-to-date description, the Authorised Court Officer. Unlike in the Crown Court, there are no juries in the Magistrates' Court, so the verdict of guilty or not guilty is decided by a bench of magistrates or by a district judge, depending on who the case is assigned to. District judges will often hear the more complex or serious cases, but where the trial is heard by lay magistrates, there must be at least two of them hearing the trial, and each has an equal vote. The justice's legal adviser advises the magistrates on law and procedure, but takes no part in deciding the verdict. A district judge, as a professional lawyer, doesn't require this sort of advice, which can make, in reality, a significant difference to speeding up a case. If you ever wondered whether a justice's legal adviser was worth it, well, that, of course, depends on the individual justice's legal adviser. But I've experienced several situations as a junior barrister in the magistrate's court, which, to my mind, proves their worth, one of which I'll mention now. Many years ago, a solicitor briefed me to attend a magistrate's court in the Midlands to cover several cases. While I was waiting to get on, I was sitting in court watching a man trying his best to defend himself against a charge, the details of which now escape me. But what I do recall was that at the end of the prosecution case, the justice's legal adviser informed the defendant that he could make what's known as a submission of no case to answer. The legal adviser explained to the man who was representing himself that his submission could be made at the end of the prosecution case and before the defence case, which is why it's commonly known as a half-time submission. And it was his opportunity at this stage to put forward any arguments as to why the case should proceed no further, on the basis that the evidence relied upon by the prosecution was insufficient to justify a finding of guilt. It was obvious that the defendant struggled really to understand what this was all about, and I promise that we'll be covering this type of submission in a later episode, too late, unfortunately, for this defendant. But what happened was that the man said a few words, the bench of three magistrates appeared to listen with care, and then they retired. After several minutes of earnest consideration, they returned to court, took their seats, and then told the defendant that they had indeed given his submission serious thought. And having done so promptly informed him that they'd reached a verdict and that verdict was guilty. The justice's legal adviser almost fell out of her seat, then span around to inform the bench that they had only listened to a half-time submission of no case to answer, hadn't given the defendant an opportunity to put forward the defence case or make a closing speech, and it was therefore irregular at the very least to find someone guilty at trial before allowing them to put forward their defence. As it happened, having then allowed the defendant to continue with his defence, they then found him guilty about 15 minutes later. One can only imagine that he may well have thought his task all but hopeless, but it's the first time 
I've ever seen anyone found guilty twice for the same offence at the same trial. So are justice legal advisors important? Well, the simple answer is yes. It's also worth bearing in mind that one of the roles of a justice's legal advisor is to assist unrepresented defendants. So this is another plus, although I've heard varying stories from people in the magistrate's court as to the amount of, in inverted commas, help they actually received. And it isn't uncommon for inexperienced defendants who are representing themselves to feel, frankly, overwhelmed and railroaded by the system. To be specific for a moment here and put my wig on, the specific duties of the Justice's legal advisor are set out in the Criminal Procedure Rule 2.12 and include the duties to, whenever necessary, give the court legal advice, to allow the parties, if present, an opportunity to make representations to the court about that advice, to ask questions of a party or witness on the court's behalf, to clarify representations and evidence, to assist the court where appropriate in the formulation of its reasons for decisions and the recording of those reasons, and also to assist an unrepresented defendant. Criminal Practice Direction 624A, which is in the podcast notes, contains further detailed information on the role of the Justice's Clerk stroke legal advisor in the Magistrates' Court. We've just been introduced to the criminal procedure rules and also to criminal practice directions, which in fact govern much of the procedure in the criminal courts. But more of these later. In the meantime, let me go back to the magistrates' court for a moment. When you see a bench of three magistrates, the middle magistrate on the bench is the chair of the bench. Magistrates are sometimes referred to in court as your worships or individually as your worship, sir or madam. As a young barrister, I was always told never to refer to magistrates as your worship since it wasn't the done thing for barristers to use that term. Sounds a bit pompous, I know, and I've no idea if that's still the approach. But district judges nowadays are simply referred to in court as judge, so at least that makes life easy for young barristers. Notwithstanding the term your worships, magistrates and district judges don't wear wigs and gowns, except in the City of London Magistrates Court where magistrates wear gowns. Other than that, Wigs and gowns really are the reserve of the Crown Court, which we'll move on to in a moment. According to the Judiciary.uk website, at the time of recording this podcast, which is February 2024, there are about 12,000 magistrates in England and Wales and over 400 district judges. It's interesting that in the years I've been running the Defence Barrister website, I've noticed the number of lay magistrates decreasing and the number of district judges increasing. I've no idea if there's an official policy behind this, but if there is, it's probably down to a cost-benefit analysis and perhaps in the name of what someone somewhere calls efficiency. So that gives you an overview of the Magistrates' Court. In fact, before I leave the Magistrates' Court, it would be wrong of me not to mention a very similar level of court, but which is designed for young people, and that's the Youth Court. Youth justice is a subject within itself. And since all of our defendants, Aidan, Bianca and Connor, are adults, i.e. over 18s, we won't be going with them into the youth court. But the way that court operates has many similarities, but some significant differences to the adult court system. In the vast majority of cases, under 18s will have their first appearance and their trial at the youth court, which is less formal than the adult magistrates court and far less formal than the Crown Court. There are also some restrictions in the youth court on press reporting and publicity. 
I've added some good quality youth justice information in the notes for anyone who'd really like to do some further reading on that. But let me now turn to the Crown Court. The Crown Court is an altogether different court experience, not least in its formality with, as we've heard, barristers and judges wearing wigs and gowns. Apart from the formality of the proceedings, perhaps the most obvious difference between the magistrates and the Crown Court is that in the Crown Court, trials are heard by a judge and also by a jury. One or more of our defendants, Aidan, Bianca and Connor, will be going to trial at the Crown Court. So we'll soon be looking at the Crown Court trial process in some detail, including the role of the jury. But what I want to mention now are the judges of the Crown Court. I mentioned that at the Magistrates Court we have magistrates, your worships and district judges. Well, in the Crown Court we have three different types of judge. Bear in mind that at the Magistrates Court, the magistrates or district judges act both as judge and jury in that they hear and weigh up the evidence, apply the law to the facts and then they deliver the verdict. And then, if that verdict is guilty, they pronounce sentence. In the Crown Court, on the other hand, the judges are what's often referred to as the judges of the law and the jury as the judges of the facts, since it's for the jury to weigh up the evidence and apply the law as the judge directs them to do. And then they have to reach a verdict. If the verdict is guilty, the judge takes over and pronounces on sentence. So there are three types of judge who sit in the Crown Court, and they are recorders, circuit judges and high court judges. Recorders are professional lawyers who sit as part-time judges and regularly hear Crown Court cases. Barristers and solicitors often become recorders because they want to become circuit judges, more of them in a moment. So this is good experience to get there. Another reason is that they want to become silks or king's counsel, which is a badge of honour for lawyers, which brings status, far higher fees if people think you're worth it and are willing to pay, and it's like, in reality, getting the taps in your bathroom gold-plated. Recorders wear a black gown and a normal barrister's wig. When I say normal, I mean as normal as wearing a wig can ever be in 2024. But when compared to a full-bottom ceremonial wig, I guess a barrister's wig is in fact quite normal. I do remember once crossing over between courts in a Crown Court centre I used to spend much of my time in. I was wearing my stiff collar and bands and black robes and wig. I then caught sight of myself in a window and it suddenly struck me. What the am I wearing? Bizarre as the outfit is, in the Crown Court it becomes part of the scenery and despite many barristers saying on social media that it's outdated and time to move on, secretly I think they love it. Circuit judges are the mainstay of the Crown Court and hear most Crown Court cases. They appear on the court list as HHJ, i.e. his or her honour judge, followed by their surname. Circuit judges wear a black and violet robe with a red tippet, which is a sash, except in the Central Criminal Court, the Old Bailey, where they wear a black gown. Circuit judges and recorders are referred to in court as Your Honour, although at the Old Bailey and occasionally elsewhere where they've attained elevated status, they're referred to as My Lord or My Lady. Occasionally, high court judges also sit in the Crown Court, usually for very serious or complex cases such as in murder trials. High court judges, who are often referred to informally by lawyers as red judges due to their red robes, are very senior judges and are referred to in court as my lord or my lady. 
All judges in the Crown Court wear a short wig, so judges only wear those long, full-bottom wigs for ceremonial purposes. If you're ever confused about judges and what to call them, and I don't mean what you actually feel you may want to call them, there's a helpful page on the judiciary.uk website called What Do I Call a Judge? Again, link to that in the notes. So that's my brief introduction to the Magistrates' Court and the Crown Court. But you'll be pleased to hear that there's more since... Earlier, I mentioned that every case where there is a formal prosecution, it has to start at the magistrate's court. But whether the case will remain there or go to the Crown Court depends primarily on what sort of offence you're charged with, or to use the legal language, how the offence is classified. So let me introduce you to three classes or classifications of offence. These are summary offences, either way offences and indictable only offences. Summary offences, also known as summary-only offences, are those that can only be tried and sentenced in the magistrate's court. So a person charged with a summary offence cannot elect trial by jury in the Crown Court, subject to several exceptions, which I'll mention in a moment. It's one of the problems, in fact, of being a lawyer, that as soon as you learn a rule, you then learn that there are exceptions to that rule. Some people call that the fun of being a lawyer, but I digress. Many summary offences do not carry a potential sentence of imprisonment. So, for example, careless driving carries a maximum sentence of a fine plus mandatory endorsement on your driving licence of between three to nine penalty points and also discretionary disqualification, but not imprisonment. But where an offence does carry a potential sentence of imprisonment, the maximum prison sentence for a summary offence in the magistrate's court is six months. Some summary offences are restricted to less than six months. One example is criminal damage, where the value of the damage is £5,000 or less. The maximum sentence available for this is three months and or a £2,500 fine. It's important to remember, though, that just because an offence carries a potential sentence of imprisonment, this doesn't mean that prison will follow. We'll be looking in far greater detail at sentencing in a later episode because for there to be a sentence, there has to be a conviction. And for there to be a conviction, there must be a finding of guilt at trial or by a plea of guilty. Summary offences are generally the least serious types of criminal offence and include the most common motoring offences such as speeding, careless driving, driving whilst disqualified, driving with no insurance, driving when under the influence of drink or drugs, failing to stop or report an accident and failing to give the identity of a driver. Some of these offences, like speeding, you're unlikely ever to go to court for, since if you admit the offence by post, you often receive points, a fine or perhaps a driving safety course, and it's all dealt with administratively. Moving away from driving matters, summary offences also include offences of violence and public disorder, such as common assault and battery, being drunk and disorderly, using threatening behaviour, harassment of the lower level not involving fear of violence, stalking, again, of the lower level not involving fear of violence or serious alarm or distress, and also assaulting or obstructing a police constable in the execution of their duty. Summary offences also include offences relating to property and property damage at the lower end of the overall scale of seriousness, including vehicle interference, taking a motor vehicle without the owner's consent, commonly known as TWOC, squatting in a residential building, aggravated trespass and criminal damage where the value of that damage is £5,000 or less. 
The magistrates also deal with certain miscellaneous summary offences, such as TV licence evasion and dishonestly receiving pay TV services with intent to avoid payment. I mentioned earlier an exception to when a person charged with a summary offence can elect trial by jury, and one exception is low-value shoplifting, i.e. theft of goods with a value of £200 or under. Even though this is classified as a summary offence, defendants who are accused of this offence are entitled under Section 22A of the Magistrates' Courts Act 1980 to elect to go to the Crown Court for trial by jury. The only reason this low-value offence is classified as a summary offence is because over 80,000 cases of shop theft come before the courts every year, albeit, I suspect, a tiny proportion of actual offences committed. And this classification allows the police to prosecute without the involvement of the Crown Prosecution Service, i.e. it's quicker, it's cheaper and it cuts down on admin. In a limited number of cases, summary offences can also be heard in the Crown Court, but only where the defendant is also charged with an either-way offence or an indictable-only offence, where all the cases can be sent for trial together to the Crown Court. And I'll move on now to either-way and indictable-only offences. Either-way offences are the next tier up, being mid-level criminal offences ranging from the not-so-serious to the very serious. Often it'll be the facts of the offence that determine how serious it really is. For example, the either-way offence of theft could involve stealing relatively cheap clothes from a shop to stealing millions of pounds from a customer or employer. They're called either-way offences because, as the name suggests, they can be heard either in the magistrate's court before a district judge or magistrates or in the Crown Court before a judge and jury. In the magistrate's court, the maximum sentence that can be imposed for a single either-way offence is six months' imprisonment and or a fine. The government tried raising this to 12 months not so long ago in the hope of cutting down the backlog of Crown Court trials, but it was ill-considered and it didn't work, so the maximum sentence is now back to six months. That said, when the magistrates are dealing with two or more either-way offences, their sentencing powers do in fact increase to a maximum of 12 months' imprisonment. And just occasionally, an even heavier sentence than this can occur, but only where the magistrate's court is also resentencing a defendant for breach of a suspended sentence, where a consecutive sentence could also be imposed. The usual maximum, however, is six months. Either way, offences encompass a vast array of offences, and these include dishonesty offences such as theft, fraud, bribery, most forms of burglary, going equipped for burglary, handling stolen goods, various company and commercial offences, insolvency offences, currency counterfeiting and computer misuse offences. Many offences of violence or damage are also either-way offences, such as assault occasioning actual bodily harm, ABH, wounding or grievous bodily harm, GBH, but not including the even more serious forms of wounding or GBH with the added element of intent to cause really serious harm. Other either-way offences against the person include child cruelty, harassment by putting a person in fear of violence, stalking involving putting a person in fear of violence or causing serious alarm or distress, making a threat to kill, possession of an offensive weapon in a public place and criminal damage where the damage value is over £5,000. 
Either way, offences also include more serious offences of public disorder, such as affray and violent disorder, as well as Class A to C drugs offences, such as possession of controlled drugs, supply, possession with intent to supply, production and importation. Some of the more serious motoring offences are either way offences, such as dangerous driving, causing serious injury by dangerous driving, causing death by careless driving, causing death by driving when unlicensed, disqualified or uninsured, and also aggravated vehicle taking. And to give you a full picture, certain sexual offences are also classified as either way, such as sexual assault, exposure, voyeurism, taking and possessing indecent images of children, outraging public decency, as well as the new offence brought in by the 2023 Online Safety Act of sending another person a photograph or film of genitals with intent to cause alarm, distress or humiliation. To finish this off, numerous regulatory offences relating to trading standards and consumer protection are also classified as either way. You may be thinking at this stage that this is all really odd, that some really serious offences can be heard at the magistrate's court where the sentencing powers are limited to six months' imprisonment for each offence. But as we'll see, just because an offence is classified as either way doesn't mean that the magistrates will accept the case called accepting jurisdiction and also called considering the case as suitable for summary trial, i.e. magistrate's court trial. Because when, on its facts, a case is, in the view of the magistrate's court, so serious that they feel their sentencing powers would be inadequate, they can then send the case for trial to the Crown Court. We'll look at that in a moment. Before we do, let's look at the final and most serious tier of criminal offences, and these are known as indictable-only offences, which can only be tried and sentenced in the Crown Court. So what are common indictable-only offences? They include the most serious offences of violence, including murder, attempted murder, manslaughter, grievous bodily harm with intent and wounding with intent, robbery, aggravated burglary, possession of a firearm with intent, explosives offences, as well as the offences of arson with intent to endanger life and arson being reckless as to whether life is endangered. Indictable-only offences include the most serious motoring offences, such as causing death by dangerous driving and causing death by careless driving when under the influence of drink or drugs. Many sexual offences involving penetration are indictable-only, including the offence of rape. Other, what are known as common law offences, are included also, such as perverting the course of justice, perjury, escape from custody, kidnapping, false imprisonment, and cheating the public revenue. Many indictable-only offences carry a maximum sentence of life imprisonment, and the offence of murder, which Aidan, Bianca and Connor face, carries, upon conviction, a mandatory life sentence. Finally, before I leave indictable-only offences, why are they called indictable-only offences? The answer is that they are what's known as tried on indictment, the indictment being the formal document that contains the charges known as counts against a defendant in a single Crown Court trial. When you read in law books about a trial on indictment, it simply means a Crown Court trial. And when you read about a summary trial, it means a magistrate's court trial. To add to this, 
Both either way and indictable only offences are collectively known as indictable offences since all are capable of being tried before a jury in the Crown Court. So that's how the legal system classifies offences. I mentioned that despite an offence being classified as an either-way offence, its facts might be so serious that the magistrates would decline to hear it. And this really leads me on to what the principal purpose of a first appearance at the magistrate court is. Essentially, it triages cases. Summary offences are allocated to the magistrate's court. Either-way cases are allocated either to the magistrate's court or the Crown Court, and indictable-only offences are allocated to the Crown Court. So how does that system of allocation actually operate as a matter of law and practice? Well, allocating summary offences is easy, since, apart from the few exceptions I mentioned earlier, they have to stay in the magistrate's court. Defendants who plead guilty will either be sentenced immediately or, if further information is needed, listed for sentence at the magistrate's court on a later date. A more complex situation arises when the magistrate's court is dealing with a defendant charged with an either-way offence. In this situation, the court will adopt what is commonly known as the plea before venue procedure, which is set out in Section 17A of the Magistrates' Courts Act 1980, and the allocation or mode of trial procedure, which is set out in Section 18 of the same Act. In summary... In these procedures, you'll be asked to indicate a plea to the charge you face, i.e., do you intend to plead guilty or not guilty? If you indicate a guilty plea, the court will then move on to decide whether you'll be sentenced in the magistrate's court or in the Crown Court. If you indicate, on the other hand, a not guilty plea, the court will then decide whether your trial will take place in the magistrate's court, i.e., summary trial, or before a judge and jury in the Crown Court, i.e., trial on indictment. So how is the decision made as to whether trial or sentence should take place in the magistrate's court, where the maximum sentence for a single either-way offence is six months imprisonment, or in the Crown Court, which has far greater sentencing powers? The simple answer is that it depends on how serious the case is, and depending on this, what the ultimate sentence should be. To make the decision, the magistrates will follow the approach set out in what is known as the Allocation Guideline. The Allocation Guideline is published on the Sentencing Council website and I've provided a link to it in the podcast notes. It states that, in general, either-way offences should be tried summarily, i.e. at the magistrates' court, unless the outcome would clearly be a sentence in excess of the court's sentencing powers for the offence after taking into account personal mitigation, or for reasons of unusual legal, procedural or factual complexity, the case should be tried in the Crown Court. To determine if a sentence would be within or outside a magistrate's six-month sentencing powers, magistrates will then turn to the sentencing guideline for the offence which the defendant faces. Sentencing guidelines are used to assist judges and magistrates in calculating the correct sentence in a variety of circumstances, and they're intended to ensure sentencing consistency across courts. In fact, courts are required to follow them unless they conclude that it would be contrary to the interests of justice to do so. 
The sentencing guidelines work by going through a step-by-step process, which allows the judge to firstly arrive at a sentence starting point and a sentencing range, i.e. a minimum to maximum, based on the defendant's culpability and also the harm caused. The judge will then adjust that starting point up or down within the sentencing range to take account of any further aggravating or mitigating circumstances. And then finally, the judge will make further adjustments where relevant, such as reduction for a guilty plea to arrive at a final sentence. The final sentence arrived at will allow the court to determine whether the case falls within a magistrate's sentencing powers or outside them. So... Let me give you an example. Imagine that a 29-year-old defendant is arrested for grievous bodily harm, an either-way offence. The defendant was seen to punch the victim several times to his face, knock him to the ground and kick him once in the face. The person he attacked has sustained a broken jaw which will require stapling together under general anaesthetic. He's lost several teeth and he's in significant pain, but nonetheless he's likely to make a full recovery. The defendant was taken to the police station and he made no comment to all questions put to him. He's a car salesman, he lives at home with his parents. He's got one previous conviction for ABH from two years ago when he was sentenced by the magistrate's court to a 12-month community order with a 200-hour unpaid work requirement and a rehabilitation activity requirement. He appears in the magistrate's court where the plea before venue procedure takes place and he indicates a plea of not guilty. The magistrate's maximum sentencing power for this offence is, as we know, six months imprisonment. The Crown Court maximum, on the other hand, is five years imprisonment. So the magistrates will now turn to the grievous bodily harm sentencing guideline, which you can also find in the podcast notes. They reached the view that there is medium culpability, level B, because the defendant used a weapon equivalent, which was his shod foot to kick the man in the face. And also, they reached the view that there is category three harm, which is really serious harm falling short of grave injury. When applying this to the table in step two in the guideline, the sentencing starting point is one year's custody with a sentencing range from a high-level community order to two years' custody. The magistrates then go on to consider the list of aggravating factors. The defendant's previous conviction for violence is an obvious aggravating factor, and this would mean the likely sentence would be increased above the one-year starting point. The magistrates listen, as they should, to arguments from both the prosecution and defence advocates as to the likely sentence upon conviction. Having listened to these submissions and considered the sentencing guideline, the magistrates then decide that the likely sentence the defendant will receive upon conviction is well above their maximum six-month sentencing powers. They therefore decline jurisdiction and send the case to the Crown Court for trial. At this stage, they'll also decide whether the defendant should be granted bail until the next hearing or remanded in custody. The case will next be listed, i.e. a date given, at the Crown Court for a plea and trial preparation hearing, what's often called a PTPH, at which stage the defendant will be asked to plead guilty or not guilty. If he pleads guilty, he'll be sentenced either the same day or soon afterwards if further information is required, such as a pre-sentence report prepared by a probation officer. 
If, on the other hand, he pleads not guilty, the case will be adjourned for a jury trial to take place at a later date. So that's how trial allocation and sending a case for Crown Court trial works. Where in the magistrate's court a defendant indicates a plea of guilty to an either-way offence, then the court similarly will have to decide whether they have sufficient sentencing powers to deal with it. This decision is made under Section 14 of the Sentencing Act 2020, an act which is often referred to as the Sentencing Code. And Section 14 states that the magistrates can, and I quote, commit the defendant for sentence to the Crown Court where they take the view that the offence or the combination of the offence and one or more offences associated with it was so serious that the Crown Court should have the power to deal with the offender in any way it could deal with the offender if the offender had been convicted on indictment. What this means in English is that a defendant who intends to plead guilty can have his or her sentence committed to the Crown Court where the full powers of sentence will then be available rather than the far more restricted powers of the Magistrates Court. And to determine if their sentencing powers are sufficient, the magistrates will usually go through the same process I described of looking at the sentencing guideline. If they take the view that the seriousness of the case is such that their sentencing powers are insufficient, they will, what's known as, commit the defendant to the Crown Court for sentence. And that will be at a later date, and they'll decide whether or not the defendant should be remanded on custody or on bail in the meantime. We'll be looking at remand on bail and custody in the next episode, so I won't dwell on these now. But before I move on, there is one more matter I want to mention about allocation. We know that defendants will be sent for trial when the magistrate's sentencing powers will be insufficient. And we also know that defendants will be committed for sentence when their sentencing powers are insufficient. This means that when the magistrates hear a trial of an either-way offence, they have already decided, by following their plea before venue and allocation procedure, that in the event of conviction, their sentencing powers would actually be sufficient. However, even where the magistrates hear the trial of an either-way offence, hidden away in section 14 of the Sentencing Code is the power, nonetheless, to commit the defendant for sentence if he or she is convicted. This would rarely be used, but in effect is a safeguard just in case the magistrates discover during a summary trial that the case was, in fact, far more serious than they had first understood it to be. So I've told you about when magistrates accept a case and when they, in essence, reject it and allocate it to the Crown Court. What of a defendant who is facing an either-way charge who doesn't want to be tried in the magistrate's court but instead wants to be tried by a jury? Well, that is the defendant's right. Even if the magistrates decide that a defendant can be tried by them in the magistrate's court, a summary trial, a defendant facing an either-way offence has the right to elect trial by jury at the Crown Court. And once this election is made, that's where the case will be sent. There's a number of reasons why a defendant might wish to do that, and these deserve a bit of time, so I'm going to look at them in a later episode. For now, and to complete this triage process conducted by the magistrates, the final type or classification of offence that the magistrates will have to deal with at first appearance is the indictable-only offence. There is, in reality, little procedure here, since, as we know, indictable offences can only be tried in the Crown Court. 
Some administrative matters can take place at this first magistrate's court appearance of a defendant charged with an indictable-only offence. For example, if they inform the court that they intend to plead guilty and therefore obtain maximum credit by mentioning this at the first opportunity, their case can then be listed for sentence at the Crown Court and all the necessary reports and information can be arranged in advance of that Crown Court hearing. Also, in many cases, an application for bail can be made and additional evidence can be obtained from the prosecution. Other than that, however, the magistrates have no option other than sending an indictable offence for trial to its natural home in the Crown Court. Let's now go back to Aidan, Bianca and Connor. Since while I've been talking about the magistrates' courts and the Crown Court, they've arrived at the magistrates' court for their first appearance, and they're waiting in the cells to be brought up to court. So what will happen to them today? The reality is, as I've already at least partially explained, not much. As we know, murder is an indictable-only offence, which can only be tried at the Crown Court. Our system is such that every case, however serious, must pop into the magistrate's court first before reaching its final and inevitable destination at the Crown Court. If you're saying, well, that's crazy or something similar... I agree, as would many lawyers. In fact, the argument goes further than that and includes whether we should have a two-tier court system at all rather than a single system that can cater to offences of all levels of seriousness. But this podcast is more about how the system is and less about what it should be. So I'll stick to the facts. The first thing that can be achieved is the right for Aidan, Bianca and Connor's legal representatives to get some information or some more information from the CPS about the evidence they're relying on to prove their case. This is known as advanced disclosure of the prosecution case, and there are some rules that come into play at this point. I mentioned earlier the criminal procedure rules as well as criminal practice directions. And these are the bedrock of court procedure, both in the Crown Court and in the Magistrates' Court. Criminal Procedure Rules Part 8, Rule 8.21a, provides that a prosecutor must serve what are known as initial details of the prosecution case on the court, to use that now well-known phrase, as soon as practicable, and in any event, no later than the beginning of the day of the first hearing. And... Where a defendant requests those details, the prosecutor must serve them on the defendant as soon as practicable, and in any event, no later than the beginning of the day of the first hearing. Even where a defendant does not request the initial details of the case, the prosecutor must still make them available to the defendant at or before the beginning of the day of the first hearing. So what are initial details? Rule 8.3 defines them in a situation where a defendant has been brought to court from police custody as a summary of the circumstances of the offence and the defendant's criminal record, if any. In any other case, such as where a defendant was bailed before their first court appearance, the initial details are more extensive. And they include a summary of the circumstances of the offence, any account given by the defendant in interview, whether contained in that summary or in another document, any written witness statement or exhibit that the prosecutor then has available and considers material to plea or to the allocation of the case for trial or to sentence, the defendant's criminal record, if any, 
And finally, any available statement of the effect of the offence on a victim, a victim's family or others. Aidan, Bianca and Connor fall into the first category, so all they are entitled to at the present time is a summary of the offence and a copy of their own previous convictions. Since Aidan, Bianca and Connor have come from custody, the information they receive is limited, but they do receive a case summary, and this is what it says. The defendants Aidan Johnson, Bianca Jones and Connor Williams are jointly charged with the murder of Daniel Clark, aged 23, following an altercation outside Bradley's nightclub at around 1am on Saturday morning. Following an altercation between the defendant Aidan Johnson and the deceased Daniel Clark inside the club, both were rejected by door staff. Thereafter, the deceased was attacked outside by all three defendants acting in concert, during which a broken bottle was used as a weapon and deliberately forced into Daniel Clark's face by the defendant Aidan Johnson, causing immediate serious injury and leading to his death later that same day. Post-mortem examination revealed the cause of death as a hypoxic ischemic brain injury due to cardiac arrest, coupled with alcohol and drug intoxication and sharp force injury to the face. The defendants Bianca Jones and Connor Williams encouraged and intended by words and conduct the deliberate infliction of really serious injury to Daniel Clark and are jointly responsible for his murder. Upon causing a serious wound to Daniel Clark, all three defendants sought to escape the scene on foot. All were tracked as a group running through the town centre where they were apprehended by police officers and arrested on suspicion at that stage of Section 18, wounding with intent. Daniel Clark was taken to hospital where he received emergency medical treatment for his injuries, multiple full thickness lacerations to the left side of his face. He died in ICU later the same day. The defendants exercised their right to legal advice. All were interviewed on suspicion of Section 18 wounding, the deceased still being alive at the time of all interviews. Only the defendant Aidan Johnson gave a responsive interview in which he denied responsibility for causing any injury to Daniel Clark. He denied having a bottle. He admitted to having an argument in the nightclub during which he and Clark had pushed each other before they were removed and ejected from the nightclub by security staff. He denied having a propensity for violence. He alleged that Daniel Clark was responsible for confronting him outside and pushing him, then punching him, when he and his co-defendants, who by now had joined him outside, simply wished to go home. Aidan Johnson claimed that he had acted in self-defence and that his co-defendants were only making silly threats. He denied either smashing or using a bottle and consistently replied, it wasn't me, when asked who was responsible, then saying it was all a blur and he did not know what had happened. He explained that he had run from the scene out of panic. The defendant Bianca Jones gave a prepared statement and answered no comment to all further questions put to her. In her prepared statement, she said that the blonde-haired male, whom she understood to be Daniel Clark, had grabbed her on the dance floor inside the club after which he pushed her boyfriend, the defendant Aidan Johnson. Both were ejected and she followed. When she arrived outside, she saw Daniel Clark pushing and assaulting the defendant Aidan Johnson with his fists, against which Johnson was defending himself. 
she maintained that Daniel Clark had at least two other friends with him who were shouting threats. A fight erupted, she said, but she had taken no part and had issued no threats towards any person. She denied responsibility for causing any injury or seeing any injury caused to Daniel Clark. She claimed to have left the scene because she was following her boyfriend. The defendant, Connor Williams, also gave a prepared statement and refused to answer all questions put to him under caution. In his prepared statement, he accepted presence outside the nightclub and accepted seeing a fight between the defendant, Aidan Johnson, the deceased, and a number of the deceased's friends, during which Johnson was doing no more than defending himself. Connor Williams denied any responsibility for assaulting the deceased or causing him any injury. He claimed to have run from the scene because he was simply following Aidan Johnson, his friend, and wished to get to a place of safety. The defendant Aidan Johnson was convicted by the magistrates after trial of ABH 18 months ago, for which he was sentenced to a community order with 100 hours of unpaid work. He has one further conviction for violence, having been convicted of common assault 30 months ago, for which he received a £300 fine and an order for £200 compensation. The defendant Bianca Jones has no previous convictions or cautions recorded against her. The defendant Connor Williams has one previous conviction from 18 months ago for making off without payment, for which he was sentenced to a £200 fine and a compensation order of £81.25. So that's the end of the prosecution summary and the details of the defendant's previous convictions. As well as the duty to provide advanced disclosure of the prosecution case by serving initial details, there is also, at this stage of the criminal justice process, what's known as a common law duty of disclosure. This is a duty on the prosecution to provide what is usually known as unused material, which concerns material in the possession of the prosecution, which either undermines the prosecution case or assists the case for the defendant. We'll be looking in more detail at the unused material disclosure provisions and how they are vital to a fair system of criminal justice. We'll be doing that later on in this podcast series. But for now, the common law duty of disclosure requires that the prosecution provide the defence with any material reasonably thought capable of assisting a defendant, for example, in bail applications or where it would be helpful in allowing a defendant to prepare his case. This is to be done in accordance with the interests of justice and fairness, and that's referred to in the Attorney General's Guidelines on Disclosure at paragraph 78 and 79. At this stage in the process at the magistrate's court, no unused material was provided to any of the solicitors acting on behalf of Aidan, Bianca and Connor, although the subject of disclosure will, in time, become an important issue in this case. I mentioned earlier that when the magistrate's court deals with indictable-only offences which travel through on their way to the Crown Court, one thing that could be achieved was to hear an application for bail. Unfortunately, however, for Aidan, Bianca and Connor, they are charged with murder. And in murder cases, the magistrates have no power to grant bail. This comes from section 115 of the Coroner's and Justice Act 2009, 
which states in subsection 1 that a person charged with murder may not be granted bail except by order of a judge of the Crown Court. When their case is called on, all three walk into the dock of the Magistrates Court. They stand up as the district judge enters. Other than confirming their names and addresses, all three are asked no questions and they remain silent. The hearing is short and efficient. The prosecutor relating the brief facts from the case summary and the defence solicitors say nothing. But there was nothing they could really add except for voicing their agreement to the date fixed for the next Crown Court hearing. This being Monday morning, the next Crown Court hearing date was set for Wednesday, since Section 115, Subsection 3 of the Coroners and Justice Act 2009 requires that in murder cases, a Crown Court judge must make a bail decision in respect of the defendants as soon as reasonably practicable and, in any event, within 48 hours of the day after their magistrate's court appearance, excluding weekends and public holidays. So that first appearance ended swiftly, with Aidan, Bianca and Connor being remanded in custody. Not custody at the local police station, but to prison, where they would spend two nights before their next court appearance. As they entered the door at the back of the dock, each managed to see the faces of family members, mums, dads, brothers, sisters, aunts and uncles. Some friends had also come along to show their support. All of them tried to appear brave for the three in the dock, but their expressions betrayed their anxiety, an anxiety which Aidan, Bianca and Connor were no longer trying to mask as they took their first steps towards a third night behind bars, but a first night in prison. In episode five, we'll be going to the Crown Court. That is the next step towards trial for all three defendants. And we discover what decisions the Crown Court judge makes about bail, as well as the consequences of those decisions, since, as all the defendants in this case will discover, facing a murder trial is rarely, if ever, straightforward. Until then, thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe, and I'll see you all again very soon. Bye.